Hello, you are very welcome to the Insider Schools podcast, the podcast where we put all the issues around teaching in Irish schools under the microscope. I'm your host, Andrew Phelan. In this, the first episode of the new season, we discussed the return to school. We asked the questions, is it really safe for a normal return to school with the current levels of COVID-19 in the community, with a new variant and with mitigation measures that have not changed since day one? We also discussed the disgraceful decision to send pregnant teachers, SNAs and education workers back into crowded classrooms. Tonight we are joined by Tomás Ryan, Associate Professor of the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College Dublin and a member of the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. Tomás gives us the bare scientific facts that suggest that maybe schools are not quite as safe as we have been led to believe. We are also joined by Olive O'Connor of Parents United who gives us her perspective as a parent with children going back to both primary and to secondary schools and she gives us some big news about a freedom of information request that was obtained which suggests that the data that we were using to uh, in schools in the past may not have been reliable. To give us the perspective of secondary school teachers, we are joined by Seamus Keane, who is a member of the ASTI, and Seamus touches on some of the things last year that happened that are very, very relevant uh, to this year. We are also joined by Mairead de Burka, who is a primary school teacher and a member of the INTO. And of course, primary schools, uh, students have yet to be vaccinated, and of course, despite all the overwhelming evidence, there is still no requirement Uh, to wear masks uh, at primary school level. Thank you all very much for coming along. Um, I hope you all enjoyed your summer break. Um, we, uh, we, we got a sense of, I suppose, some sort of no- normal summer where people were able to go to restaurants outdoors and indoors even uh, towards the end of the summer. And people were allowed to move around the country uh, freely. And indeed, some people uh, went abroad um, for the first time in, in a couple of years. So the, so the holidays or the summer has been good to, to many people, I suppose. Um, but of course, that's probably going to come at a cost. And you can hear, you can see, um, you know, now when we're at the point of returning to school, the numbers seem to be creeping up again. They were quite low. They stalled at about 1300 for a good few weeks. And then now they seem to be creeping up and up and up. Um, and again, the hospitalizations appear to be going up and even those who are vaccinated. So I guess just to clarify things where we are at, because if you look at social media or indeed the, the established media, um, it can be quite confusing where there's two opposite sides kind of having a go at each other. Uh, and so I'd like to just at the start of this, can, can, Tomas, can you just tell us exactly uh, you're the, the, the scientific uh, mind here or the scientific not have the scientific knowledge to be able to answer. Uh, where exactly are we at uh, now at this point in returning to school? Well, thank you, Andrew, for, for having me here with this group and this podcast. I think we're in a very worrying place with respect to schools. With the broader pandemic for Ireland, we're in a very complicated position. Vaccine program has been immensely successful, uh, mainly because of the high degree of vaccine enthusiasm that we have uh, here in Ireland. At the same time, we have literally the highest case numbers in the European Union today and they are rising steadily. They're likely to grow even more significantly significantly after we open schools and so on. Uh, so the, the epidemiological situation broadly 
is is quite nuanced. I don't think it's it's positive broadly, despite what we're hearing in the media. And personally, I don't think we've had a very normal summer. Uh, maybe that's just my perspective. Maybe that's because I was vaccinated towards the end of the summer. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure that we've handled this the best way that we, we could be doing overall. To the point about schools, what is exactly going to happen in the next few months, nobody knows. Uh, but I can't see how the scenario that plays out within our primary and secondary schools can possibly be good. What is absolutely clear is that children right now are more vulnerable to COVID-19 than they have been at any point in the pandemic. And the reason that they are is principally because we are relaxing all restrictions while case numbers are very high and getting higher and we have the more transmissible Delta variant. We're protecting most individuals in the population now with vaccination and the vaccines are excellent, of course. Uh, there are vaccine breakthroughs. And for this reason, we may see surges of hospitalization even this winter, primarily amongst the vaccinated, but that's another discussion really. Um, but the vaccines are protecting adult individuals. At the moment, we're only vaccinating a subset of teenagers and we're not vaccinating any under 12s. So schools are essentially a vaccine-free environment. Primary schools are completely vaccine-free. So we're engineering a situation where you're very likely to be exposed to the virus if you're an unvaccinated person behaving normally in society if we, if we really removed all restrictions. And that means children. Yeah, that's quite frightening um, to hear, uh, to, to hear that. Um, I know um, I have a child who's, who's starting primary school um, in in September, actually next Wednesday. And, you know, it, it is, it's very frightening and stark to, to hear that, you know, you get the sense that society is moving on. Uh, you get the sense when you see football matches and everything starting again, and you see, you know, the, hopefully for some people who are involved in the arts industry, they will allow some sort of gigs uh, to go ahead again. And, and this, this is the kind of conversation that is out there. And I suppose people are then really forgetting about the primary school age children who, who are not vaccinated. And what I'd be right in saying is biologically um, they're, they're exactly the same as an adult. Uh, they have lungs, they have a nose, they have, you know, they can breathe, they have, a, you know, they have everything that we have. So of course they can get or catch COVID the same as an adult can. Now, obviously the, the, the very, with two varying, the, the varying consequences to it, you know, the, the children seem to not get it as bad um, as adults or, or certainly the older population. But catch it, they still can, and, and go to hospital with it, uh, they still can. Would, would that be correct? Children get COVID-19. Uh, there is no question. Um, we had this sort of narrative that goes back to the beginning of the pandemic, that children don't really get the disease. Um, it was always based on wishful thinking, and we were always fighting against this misorientated skepticism uh, that we've seen for many things in the pandemic, such as face masks, where people are rightly skeptical, but skeptical in the wrong direction. So when we're dealing with a highly infectious disease that is disrupting society like this, 
uh, skepticism should always be in favor of the precautionary principle. And we've been putting skepticism in the other direction. We've been skeptical of anything that we would have to do to deal with the disease, skeptical of the use of face masks, skeptical about whether children contribute to the pandemic or not. Now, we know children get COVID-19. They're not just vectors of the virus. In fact, some people were critical of even the idea that children were vectors of the virus. Um, some people thought it was demeaning and insulting to refer to children that way. Uh, vector simply means that you pass the virus on to another person. Every human being is a vector. It's a clinical, medical, scientific term. There's no reason for it to be offensive. And to say that children are not vectors is, is to say that they're completely impervious to the virus, which is, of course, nonsense. Uh, what we know is that children are less affected by the pathological consequences of it. So we know that children are far less likely to die of COVID-19 than an adult. Everyone knows that. That's true of young adults, too. There's no special threshold that you cross when you get to under 18s or under 12s. So far in the pandemic, at least 500 Brazilian children have died of COVID-19 that we're aware of, and about 350 children in the USA have died of COVID-19 that we're aware of. Now, that's still a really, really small number when you consider how many children are infected. Um, and hopefully there will be no COVID-19 child deaths in Ireland. What we do have to worry about is the much more common effects of COVID-19. In the US, about 1% of children infected with the virus uh, end up in hospital. And obviously a subset of those end up in the ICU. We may not see those percentages in Ireland because people will argue that there are other factors that affect the likelihood of you being in hospital if you've got COVID-19, but a very large number of children do get hospitalized with it. And right now in the US, more children are hospitalized with it than at any other point in the pandemic thus far. And it's nothing to do with different vaccination rates because children are not vaccinated, of course, in, in either country. Um, the other thing to take into account is long COVID. And long COVID is a serious disease of the brain, of the lungs, of joints, of muscles, of, 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 it's a, of, the, of the digestive system. It's a multi-organ uh, disorder. COVID-19 is a multi-organ disorder. And long COVID can last for months or in some cases uh, a, over a year. Uh, there's at least 10,000 children in the UK who are suffering for long COVID for more than a year. Uh, there's about 35,000 children in the UK that we know about that have been suffering long COVID for at least three months. Um, and obviously, these are generally studies of earlier variants of the virus. We know the Delta variant is also more virulent. The Delta variant is twice as likely to put you in hospital. Uh, some, some people will argue about this and say, oh, well, one study found that only 2% of children infected get long COVID. Uh, again, misplaced skepticism, and that study is highly questionable for a number of reasons. But 2% is not a rare uh, disease. So the definition of a rare disease is affecting 0.02% of people. 2% uh, is a common disease if you're infected. So when I hear scientists on the radio and so on say, oh, it's okay, the effects on, on children are rare, 2% is not rare. And in fact, it's probably more like 7 to 10% of children suffer long COVID for at least a couple of months. And a subset of those will suffer it for, for much longer. So long COVID is, is no joke. Uh, we don't know what the history of this virus is. We don't really know how it's going to affect the population in the long term. 
So my concern is that if we don't wait for vaccination for children, or if we don't create uh, a virus-free environment, which obviously is obviously is not going to happen right now in Ireland, uh, we're at a moment in the pandemic that we could look back on with extreme regret as a society. You know, some people will listen to this and say, look, we've been suffering for a year and a half. We've gone through three long lockdowns so far. We've had a lot of deaths. We've very much damaged our economy and our mental health. And now you're telling us that we need to stay like this forever because of, because of the threat to children uh, who are always being born. And, and how are we possibly going to manage this? You know, children seem to be dealing with this very well and surely it's good for their immunity. Now, this is a temporary problem. Uh, this is not going to be here for the rest of the pandemic. It's a special moment in the pandemic where the vulnerability is pediatric because soon the mRNA vaccines will be approved for under 12s. That is going to happen hopefully this side of Christmas. And then we are going to give it to them, particularly in Ireland, there will be very little resistance to that because the choice is not vaccination or no vaccination. That might be your choice in New Zealand. The choice is vaccination or infection. So once we get the child population vaccinated, this will stop being an issue possibly for the rest of the pandemic, even if the pandemic goes on for years more, even if this becomes a very messy scenario, and hopefully it won't, but it's very possible that it will, this is not going away uh, this year. It's probably not going away next year. Um, the, the unique position we're in now is a temporary one. This period of a few months is the point where, if we're very careless, the virus can rip through the population of children. We've seen contact tracing studies in Australia and in other places that have shown the Delta variant has a 70 to 90% attack rate. In a poorly ventilated classroom in Ireland, uh, one child could potentially spread it to most or all of the class in one day. At the high case numbers we're facing, you could have a situation where one in 10 or one in 12 classrooms in Ireland has an active spreader in them unless the parents have kept them home because of symptoms. And of course, it doesn't account for asymptomatic spreaders. So in a very short space of time, this could move very quickly uh, through our schools. Now, hopefully that won't happen, but there's nothing stopping that. And you could easily imagine scenarios where in the next few months, uh, that is between now and, and Christmas, if we don't take serious precautionary measures to prevent the spread of this virus in our schools, uh, most of Irish children could conceivably be infected with the virus, which seems in, in, in to be implicitly the plan in England. Uh, it's not the plan here, but we seem to be going along with that type of approach in a very passive way. Yeah, again, it goes back to the language, even when you mentioned there about rare, when, when, well, technically it's not defined as rare as 2%, but it's just the language that seems to be used. And again, we see to, uh, yesterday, uh, the minister, uh, you know, say that schools are safe places. Uh, again, the language uh, probably not based on 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 really accurate science. Um, but just uh, Olive, I want to bring you in. We've had you uh, on the sh on the show in, in the past um, uh, as a parent. Uh, um, I know you you study data and you you collect data for Parents United, and you know you 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 look internationally uh, at this. H just even that aside, how? Does that make you feel um, about uh, 
your your children going to school? Yeah, so I've the kind of three layers in my children. So my eldest is going to college for the first time this year and the plans for colleges are just frightening me so much. My children, um, as I've said before, are high risk children. They have my eldest have all been vaccinated. My baby hasn't. She's awaiting heart surgery. So we have to be very careful. We've protected them for 18 months. We're continuing to do so. But once she goes to college, she won't be coming home unless she does a two week quarantine even though she's vaccinated because of the risk of bringing it home but even for her because of breakthroughs the plans for colleges are horrific and then we've the second level which is my two next girls and they're going into secondary school and they are vaccinated um, and then the issue there arises is that if there is a case in their class they may not be told Uh, they may not have to isolate or anything else from that even though they can potentially, again, bring that home and or get sick, even if it's not very sick, they still can get sick. Um, And my kids have already gone through post-viral with swine flu. So that's that's worrisome. Um, My youngest can't go to play school this year because we have literally no mitigations in childcare at all. Zero. Um, so she can't go to play school. She has um, special educational needs. She doesn't she hasn't seen a child her age ever since she's been born. She's never met a child her age. Um, because pre-COVID, I didn't have friends that had children that age and she was too young for for play school or creche. So um, that, that for as a mom, that breaks my heart that I'm left in a position like this when it could have been prevented, that I want her to have great mental health and social health, but physical health also. Um, just thinking of what the ma said there, Two percent, you know, people look at the percent and they think, oh, it's only two percent. Well, you know, there's eight hundred and eighty thousand children in Ireland under the age of 12. Right. Two percent of that, you're looking at about 16,000 children you're looking at or whatever the math is. If you're looking at one percent anyway, I know it's eight thousand, but seven percent if we're looking at long COVID statistics, we're 60,000 children in Ireland potential. But if they were all exposed, we're not saying all of them will, but there is a potential with seven percent of all children. They're, they're not small numbers, but even if it was only 100 children, they're children, they're people's little kids, you know, they're not just numbers. So it's very frightening from that perspective. Um, the fact that the policy that the uh, the DES based on EAG, um, the expert EAG group coming out with no masks in primary schools because of a choking hazard is absolutely crazy. I mean, give me a break. Kids like wear school ties, they wear scarves, they have glasses, they can they eat food, which is a choking hazard. Um, there is no evidence anywhere that children have choked on masks over the age of two years of age. The WHO, the CDC, nearly most countries have masks on children over the age of two. So for primary school children, for it not to be recommended, I mean, if they just said we recommend it, but you don't have to, okay, at least that would be a, a big difference because then those parents want to put masks on their children, they wouldn't feel so stigmatised. But what you have an issue is with parents, I'm afraid to put a mask on my child because they'll be different to everybody else. A recommendation would make a huge difference even in that. We know that, um, I think um, it was said the last day that CDC actually said it, that when people wear masks and there's HEPA filters in class, you can reduce transmission by 90%. I mean, 90% reduction in the chances of children getting sick and staff, by the way, not just children. I mean, these are things, real practical things across the world that are happening, that are proven, which are evidence-based. And our government 
have decided, no, we don't want to do that. It, it definitely makes me wonder why. Um, masks, the government don't even have to pay for them. People can pay for them themselves. A HEPA voucher could be in around 300 euro. You have 30 kids, that's 10 euro a child. I'm sure parents' committees or whatever would be able to fund it. And I know of parents and teachers who are paying for this themselves to put in schools because they're so scared at the moment. It's an absolute failure of our government and it's a failure to all of us on this. But there's one other topic that I do want to touch on. Um, and that is what, what we go back to, you know, the DES will always say public health told us. They're, they're, we're taking our guidance from them. But it comes back to something really important and that's the data that we're actually getting. Uh, the reporting and the data that we've been getting from day one. So um, later this week, um, myself and Parents United will be releasing FOIs that we got um, a little while back. Um, from the Department of Health and HSE. And we found that the deputy CMO of Nethet was emailing Ernest and Young and the HSE asking, are there index cases in the school reports, by the way? Nethet didn't even know what were in these reports. We didn't get school reports for three months last, last year. No school reports for three months. On top of that, any time the reports were questioned, including myself, I questioned Dr. Abigail Collins on Twitter about an issue that I had with the report called the cumulative table, which was all dated to date. Next, the next day that report was taken, that summary table was taken out of the report, of the school reports. We have so many issues with, uh, there's over-testing in numbers, then there's um, under uh, number of cases being underreported. So this is what NEFID are relying on for their data to tell us that skills are safe. We need to go back to the core and that part needs to be resolved. They have to be challenged on the way the data is reported. Right now, it is nearly impossible for myself, and I'm sure Tomas could even verify that, to get the full oversight of what happened in schools from last year to date. The cyber attack was blamed Seriously, there's no reason for that because schools themselves were logging it um, and, and it's all manually input, by the way, in the school reports. So I think what we really, really need to do, and I'll be releasing a lot of this information this week because the media wouldn't do it. So I'm just going to do it myself. But what I what I really want to come back down to is it's it's exactly what Tomas said. It's, it, it's so true. Children are just little human beings. They have lungs. They have noses. They can breathe. They can get sick. If you even combine another respiratory conditions such as RSV with that, our system is going to be in chaos. We have always had one of the worst health systems in Europe. It's been ranked as one of the world health systems, worst health systems. And literally two days ago, we were down to one pediatric ICU bed, ICU bed in the whole country for children. And if we have a massive surge of COVID and with another respiratory condition, which there, there are, or big car crashes or whatever the case might be, that's not just children with COVID who are at risk, that's all children are at risk. Um, and the last thing I just want to say is, um, I know Dr. Perez at the last NEFID briefing did say something along the lines of, it's only children with underlying conditions um, going into ICU, that's not true. And their own reports will say, 72% of children who are admitted to ICU with COVID had no underlying conditions. So it's really important that the facts are put out there and that anybody working in NEFED or in public health or anywhere else say the truth, because it's hard enough. We're fighting anti-vaxxers, we're fighting COVID deniers. We literally just want our own public health teams just to say it as it is and to put in the proper measures 
to protect our school staff and our children. Yeah, no, I remember uh, that, Olive. I was, I, I was on the, the standing committee uh, of the ASDI last year. And I remember at the meetings very vividly, uh, what we were getting was, in effort, I suppose, interpretation of the data. And countless times we said, can you just ask Neffet, as you know, as the trade union, can you ask Neffet for the raw data so we can look at ourselves, get another expert or you know a third eye in on it, and have a look at the data um, and, and make decisions on what to do in terms of the union going forward based on the data rather than Neffet. But things just didn't seem to be adding up. And I'm not calling them liars. I'm not calling them anything like that. Uh, but it just it, things weren't adding up. And I remember true union meetings. People were, were, were saying that, you know. Uh, Seamus, you want to come in there on that, yeah? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, just on a few things. Now, I'm not sure myself whether I'd be diplomatic as you, Andrew, and not say that there was, uh, if not lying, at least it's, it's just they're being very disingenuous. And just on Olive's point, um, uh, yeah, look, they, they seem to be tying themselves up and not trying to come up with... Um, some logic that says that schools are safe places. I think we all saw Killing the Gascon um, yesterday and you referenced Abigail Collins about masks. Um, yeah, so I just want to acknowledge that. Like there's something I, I think invidious going on here. Um, just, I want to go back to the point that Tomas made um, about our skepticism around face masks. I think this is important, um, especially as we're talking about educational facilities. Um, I, I like the problem here is if we go back a year, um, like I, I engaged, you know, as part of the union and, uh, you know, kind of campaigning online as well for face masks for I'm a secondary teacher. Um, and it was really, really difficult. It was only around this time last year that HICWA eventually, I think, came out and um, recommended face coverings in schools. Um, only for uh, 13th years and over. Um, and it seemed to me that the problem around schools is that are in education, we have this kind of a very, and, and a very child-centered education ideologues and middle-class journalists and commentators who really focus and prioritize the communication, um, well-being, mental health of children, which are all very important but not to the detriment of um, possibly getting infected in a classroom because they're not wearing masks. And I remember last year when eventually for second years or for uh, post-primary um, students that it was, and I remember it, face coverings was the term used. They wouldn't even use face masks. And what a lot of schools then did was they jumped on this and they went, we're going to use visors. And I remember the TUI came out and they went, yes, um, our members would prefer to use visors because face masks inhibit communication. Now, back then I can understand maybe we were dealing with, well, it wasn't that new. We all saw what happened in Italy, but it'd been, you know, in Wuhan, we, we all saw what was happening. Um, so I still felt there was something very wrong with that. Um, but eventually in a post-primary level, we got face masks. And as a post-primary teacher, I would feel a lot safer going back into my classroom next week, knowing that most of the kids will be wearing face masks properly. Um, but I also have a, 
a child in primary. My wife is an SNA in a primary school. And I cannot believe that they are going back on math. I really cannot believe it. And again, my problem is there just seems to be this idea that well-being and mental health and communication is much more important for our little darlings than the, the, the possible long-term implications of COVID for a very small number of students, which I think is very selfish. Seamus, can I come in there and just say that we have looked at this in ISAG and it's lots of people have looked at the literature on this. There is no evidence that face masks are bad for children's mental health or that it impairs communication. Uh, children don't want to wear them. Um, they, my children don't like me saying that we need to be doing this now in school. They, they think it's an awful idea. Uh, they're in primary school. But when you explain to them the logic, they understand. And the wonderful thing about children is they have to do everything for the first time. They don't particularly like wearing school uniforms. They don't like wearing eyeglasses. They don't like wearing eye patches when that has to happen. They certainly don't like getting braces. Uh, and generally speaking, they don't like going to school, but they do go to school and they do do all those things. Uh, so the idea that they won't do them or can't do them is, is, is absurd. In fact, they will cooperate more on average than adults will. Uh, and that's obvious for anyone who's spent more than 20 seconds thinking about this. Furthermore, uh, the report that was published last year from Nefid on, on, on face masks is, is, was frankly absurd uh, at the time. Uh, choking hazard, troublesome for children, may result in greater fomite spread. spread. This, these are not uh, real concerns. It is happening in classrooms around the world. The US Center for Disease Control uh, recommends that now with the Delta variant, all classrooms of all age groups should have masks all the time. Every modeling study that has looked, on, looked at this suggests that it would significantly reduce the spread in a classroom as would other mitigation measures that are very practical for us to do. Uh, we don't have the hospitality sector pushing against us on this particular issue. We don't have uh, IBEC, we don't have ISMI, we don't have any of the usual resistances to government measures. Having any interest in this, teachers unions want it, uh, parents advocacy groups want it, the scientific evidence suggests we should have it, um, and there's just a complete lack of interest. And with respect to what we're hearing from Neffet, I have to frankly say that I have lost a lot of confidence in Neffet. Um, I question the competence of many of the people there. Um, I think a lot of the things that's coming uh, from some members of Neffet um, represents negligence in public communication of science, uh, represents negligence in proper public health recommendations. And I don't want to be too critical of the individuals on NEFIT. Uh, I mean, obviously I disagree extremely uh, with some of the comments made by Professor, excuse me, by Dr. Kilian de Gaskin when he said yesterday that children are safer in schools and in the community. That is flat out nonsense. And I think most people see that. I have to criticize strongly the narrative uh, that Professor Philip Nolan has placed around the epidemiological modeling, which does not at all 
rule out the affected schools and the population. And I think that much of the data from around the world clearly shows that schools do contribute to epidemiological spread, not a major driver, but a significant driver. Uh, and we all know that the contact tracing and the analysis uh, within schools has not been done uh, thoroughly, has not been done correctly, has not been done in an equivalent way to adults. Even when you read the HSE's report, um, you can see that there is a large proportion of children that we know about who've had COVID-19 in Ireland. So we know that 6% of the Irish population uh, has been confirmed to have had COVID-19. Now, 4% of the Irish child population has been confirmed of COVID-19. That's not a low percentage. That's two-thirds the rate of adults. And it's probably more than that in children because it's harder to identify symptoms. And this is by the HSE's own numbers. They, they, they can put whatever headline they like on it, but their own data, which is shallow and limited, shows that we need to be concerned about children and actually also shows that putting kids in schools during term three of the last school year doubled the proportion of children who were contributing to COVID-19 in Ireland. These are just facts. Um, and so I, nevertheless, I'm hesitant to rail too much on individuals in NEFIT. I think they're in over their head. I think they've been in over their head for a very large, uh, very large period of time in this pandemic. I have to say that the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group which is a volunteer organization that I'm a part of. We've always been in agreement with them when they've called for lockdowns. But lockdowns are, are an emergency measure that we shouldn't have to use. They're the airbags on the car. You use them when you've got nothing else to deal with, nothing else to manage, a surge that will lead to a lot of death and hospitalization. But with respect to strategy, they seem to have none. And they have consistently misrepresented uh, the science. It seems for political reasons, or if not for political reasons, perhaps it's for rather parochial reasons in the sense that they think that they know what's best for the country. Um, and sometimes I'm not even sure whether Neffet have been purposely misrepresenting the science. Sometimes I wonder, do Neffet simply not understand the science? Uh, which is perfectly possible because I don't have a large degree of confidence uh, in the caliber or in the qualifications of many of the, indivi many of the individuals who have been taking the decisions for NEFIT over the past year and a half. Uh, however, you know, making these decisions is not rocket science. The kind of things you need to know to make sensible decisions here are really not rocket science, despite the misdirection we get in the media, despite the misdirection that we get from certain journalists who are pushing certain agendas. Uh, it's a respiratory virus, it's highly contagious, it's airborne, it's really not rocket science to see that face masks are important. It's really not difficult to look at the percentages of children internationally who are hospitalized, who are suffering from long COVID, and multiply that by the Irish population. You know, primary school children right now could come up with a better COVID mitigation strategy for schools, it seems, than Killian de Gaskin or Philip Nolan. This is the level of absurdity that we've arrived in. Um, I didn't think it would get this bad in terms of the quality of the public conversation. I suspect a large part of it was the media went on holiday for most of August. There wasn't enough uh, anticipatory discussion for the school situation. And, we're, and I was absolutely shocked a few days before now to hear Dr. Abigail Collins actually say the words, school is are safe. You know, I really thought the government would at least avoid falling into those traps. 
And then to hear Norma Foley, Minister Norma Foley, on the radio yesterday on RTE to say that everything that can be done is being done. They're perfectly, we're perfectly organized. There's all the mitigation measures in present in place. That is not true. Uh, they have not updated their advice in nearly a year. They have not factored in for the Delta variant. They have not factored in high case numbers. And we have never seen this type of opportunity before for the virus to spread through the population. So there's only two conclusions to make here or two possible conclusions. One is that they don't care or the other is that they have the intention of creating herd immunity through infection through children. Uh, which is what they seem to be doing in England. I know that sounds crazy, but that does seem to be Boris Johnson's uh, plan. I suspect it's the former here. I don't think they're actually intending to do that here. Um, I think that we have a mentality in our politics and in our civil service that once they've exhausted their bandwidth, well, then there's nothing anyone else could have done in their position. Um, I think that's a failing of how we do politics in general. I think that's a failing of what we tolerate out of our politics. Uh, but in this particular instance, I'm concerned that this is going to lead to a lot of damage and it could lead to uh, a very large degree of, of damage for, for children in this country and in, and in many countries going forward. Now it's recognized in the USA, uh, President Biden you know, is doing everything he can to encourage the fast, track, fast tracking of vaccines for under 12s. They have, uh, an anti-vax movement in the US, but it's for all ages. And the people who are pro-vax are pro-vax for all ages. Uh, they never had this strange conversation that emerged here about should we even be vaccinating children? I mean, I, for me, it's absurd. Uh, why would you not want to vaccinate your child over, over have them be infected? So the US is recognizing this. And if you talk to Americans right now in their Delta wave, they are really worried about their kids. It is on the forefront of discussions and locally, the measures are being managed very well in some places. It depends on states and cities because in America, local politicians have a lot of power. Mayors have a lot of power. School boards have a lot of power. State governors have a lot of power. In New York, they're doing wonderful things on ventilation in classrooms and parents are aware of what's going on. In parts of California, if there's one child in the classroom that has COVID-19, everyone stays home for two weeks and that's just it. And in my opinion, that's how you need to manage it. And the children are wearing masks and the classrooms yeah. are well ventilated. In some places they're doing the classrooms outdoors because they're able to do so because of the weather. Um, and this is part of the conversation. They are aware this is a, the problem they're now in, that this is the kids part of the pandemic. And we are completely wallpapering over this in Ireland. Um, and I find it incredibly disturbing, uh, but perhaps not, perhaps not very surprising given the general way we treat children in this country when you consider access to, child's, to child health services in general, to the quality of how we treat our education system um, and how we've in general treated children's, children's rights for, for generations. I wonder is that type of thinking present still in our civil service. I don't see any evidence that it is, but, but it's something I wonder. Um, uh, of course, in, in different European countries are dealing with it differently, and the UK are doing things much worse than us in schools right now, of course. Uh, but I think that distracts from other countries that are doing things more, more properly with respect to children. I also want to bring in Mairead. Uh, you've been waiting quite patiently there. As a primary school teacher, uh, 
students not wearing uh, masks in front of you. And of course, you know, we don't have, as others have mentioned, we don't have the ventilation systems in place in schools. Many of our school buildings are old. Uh, we don't have really the social distancing that they say, uh, you know, and, you know, so what are your feelings then, I suppose, uh, from, the, from the primary sector uh, on everything that you've just heard over the last half an hour or so? So many feelings, Andrew. I, I think the first thing I want to say is four words. Schools are not safe. And I don't want to frighten parents, but really they need to know the risks in order to decide what are they going to do. They need to know them because they're being misled. I think the messaging has been a disaster. So we went from children are vectors, keep them away from me in March 20 to September, my own pupils coming in and telling me, oh yeah, you're wearing a mask. Yeah, you better wear a mask, you know, keep yourself safe. We're grand, children don't get it. How do you know children don't get it? Oh, my man told me, they were talking about it at home. So it was obvious that the parents believed this because children were on play dates, they were carrying on going to their usual sports events. They were meeting up in friends' houses. This is through the whole year now. They were really cross that Halloween couldn't go ahead in the school. They thought it should, but they understood. And, and the one other message I want to say is children are fantastic. Children are fine. They understand if it's explained to them, but it hasn't been explained to them. And it hasn't been explained properly to parents. So that's kind of what I want to do here. Um, where will I begin with it? I think Neffet have no idea about primary schools. And I'm talking about primary schools because I know them. I've been teaching for 39 and a quarter years. I have no idea how many children I've been I have taught and loved. So let's just have a look at what we have. We've got the largest class size in the entire EU. Largest class size. I've taught in a number of schools. It's the same everywhere. And 30 isn't considered a large class by teachers. But they hear they've got 30, they think, oh, that's a grand class this year now. I've taught 36. I thought taught 42. Not that long ago. Pods, we were told. Pods will keep your children safe. It's grand. We've invented this new thing now, pods. Pods are the tables at which your children have always sat. That's what pods are. So that's no change. Bubbles. The bubbles will keep them safe. The bubbles are the classes. So if your child is in third class, their bubble is third class. If your teacher is in a small school and there's two teachers, your child's bubble is third, fourth, fifth, and sixth class. That's a bubble. And if you tell the department, which some of my colleagues, and not in my school, but I, and I know a lot of teachers, they have said, we can't manage with pods. They're too squished together. And they've been told, are you grand? Call, call it all a bubble then. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Social distancing. Because our numbers in our schools are so high, we can't do it. So what did the department say? Remember when Joe McHugh, God help him, was the minister and we thought that his ideas were really bad. Do you know what? They weren't too bad at all when you think of what came next. He was coming up ideas of 
of staggering uh, numbers of children in classes and maybe that some of them were in in the morning and more in the afternoon and maybe every second day and we thought god that's mad when you think about it he had the right idea at least about numbers fair play to him credit where it's due but having them all in all at once this was a big kudos what a mighty minister she she succeeded where everyone else failed i wouldn't call that a success i would call that a disgrace so they're all in together all on top of each other and when we told them that we had too many in the room that we couldn't possibly do it when i say we i'm talking about the teacher professional general they said well you don't need to do it so junior infants senior infants first and second are got help us the creators how could they stay away from each other don't bother with social distancing and then for third fourth fifth and sixth one meter and they put in the beautiful quotation marks if possible in other words don't bother with them either so there's in effect no social distancing in schools and the reason that i distrust neffet and every other person who comes on about schools are safe and the rest of it is everything that we're told to do in society it, for example social distance it doesn't apply to schools don't mind it no you can carry on without it in schools masks the children would wear masks no problem some of the children i taught chose to wear them and i would say to parents if you want your children to wear masks they can no one's going to stop them no one is going to stop them and if you want to ring up a few of the parents on the whatsapp or whatever the dreaded whatsapp with all the messages about the teachers have a chat and say why don't what would you feel about all of us putting masks on our children that's your decision if you want to do that as parents teachers won't stop you but this big thing about the virus and all the cleaning we do you'd want to see the amount of cleaning that i did last year i'm a teacher i'm not a cleaner but i spent more time cleaning last year than nearly than teaching this idea that that covid is airborne i'm on about that for over 12 months now and nobody will will admit it we have no mitigations in schools for an airborne virus there's a big who have about co2 monitors coming to schools now those monitors are going to be shared between classrooms we won't even get one each we have none yet by the way they haven't arrived yet um special education classrooms none staff rooms no offices no but they're no good without having the air filters the co2 monitors are like a smoke alarm that tell you your house is on fire okay we know it's on fire we know there's covid in there we know it's airborne if we think about it at all we've already got the windows open absolutely as open as they can go what are we going to do when there's a huge big reading on it and we're told what 800 to 1000 is a safe level or the hegarty tells us these are going to be set at what 1200 to 1400 by the department preset come on who are they trying to cod but most people won't you see teachers have been absolutely cowed down any time we've tried to say schools aren't safe we've been told shut up you just want to laze around at home you lazy old wingers so teachers are sick of it and they're just head down now and they're going to try and protect themselves and protect the children as best they can which brings me to another thing my parents have said to me I'm happy to send my children to school to you because I know you will protect them. And I say to them, I can't. <laughs> Hello, I am not a wizard. 
But I can't be too rough because I don't want to frighten them. And I definitely don't want to frighten the children. But parents think that. They think that we're a great school and the other school down the road is a great school and we look after them. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that, I think, is is burying their head in the sand. I'll be talking to people over, over it, it's it's a fear. It's not even that they believe you can protect them. They're they telling them, they're telling themselves that. They're telling they themselves that pods will yeah. work. They're telling yeah. themselves that bubbles work. Yeah. They're telling themselves the social distance in the school. They're telling themselves that they don't need masks. Yeah. They're the fear. So it's, it, it makes, it, it, well, it offsets the fear or it offsets the, the thought. Everything that is illogical. They believe that. Everything we hear is illogical. To say yeah. the children don't get COVID, get out of here. To yeah. tell me the children don't um, transmit COVID. Listen, 39 and a quarter years, I've seen them transmit everything under the sun. Head lice, every two or three months, we'd have the letter to Hazen to go home. Mumps, measles, chicken pox, slap, everything. Everything you could think of. Diarrhea, vomiting bug, the whole lot. It's spread in school. So to think that they couldn't spread COVID is nonsense. The parents have always sent children into school sick because it's like that. They think we'll mind them. Mm. But how mad is that? sending them in sick and infecting the rest of them. But with COVID now, it's just ridiculous. And sometimes parents, I've heard reports, they're not very pleased with getting the phone call, could you come in and collect your child? And they won't come. Or if they do, they'll send them back in again the next day. And that'll teach her. Online learning. Now I want to talk about this because everyone keeps saying it wasn't any good for the children. Listen, I teach children with special needs. And they had a fantastic online distance learning experience because I made sure they did. And we used Seesaw and they absolutely loved it. And they grew in their independence and their technical skills. We had Zooms. I had one little boy who needed it. He had, I'd Zoom every single day with him. And others as they needed it. There was no stone left unter unturned. They had a great time and they loved it. And we continued with it throughout the whole year because we started in September so they'd be used to it if we ever had to, to lock down so they were ready to move to it. And Mairead, can I just say in there, yeah. like my, my girls did online learning while the school was open. So they were able to do that in their secondary school. They set up Microsoft yeah. Office. Yeah. They were able to, add, my girls were able to just log into the class. The teachers logged them in. They were actually able to log yeah. in. Yeah. My first year, way better in her exams this year she was off for the whole year she did way better in all of her exams than mm -hmm. any other year she's ever done before yeah, so because she wasn't being distracted by students yeah. we've got to call <laughs> out the, the misinformation and one other thing is the contact tracing i've just got to tell you a story of our, our own experience here and the contact tracing was crazy in schools and we didn't even know who had covid or who needed to be traced we weren't told it was a big secret we were told by the department by the HSE, don't tell anybody. So we had a case here in this house. My daughter is a teacher and she contracted COVID in her junior infant classroom or in the school somewhere, as did the SNA in the room. Um, on the Sunday evening, she was saying, I don't feel that great. I think I'm going to go to the doctor tomorrow. And I said, oh, God, do you think we should stay at home? And she said, no, I'm all right, I'd say. Because she had not the usual symptoms. She had sore eyes was her biggest thing sore eyes, nothing else. So we went off to work. There's lots of us here in the house because they all came home to work from home. I went to school and she rang me to say she'd been to the, G or she had the telephone call with the GP and she was going to be sent for a test. 
So I said, oh, God, do you think I should go home? So she said, maybe ring the GP. I rang my GP and she said, yes, go home. I said to my principal, I told him what had happened. And I said, I, I better go home. We better wait and see if she's positive or negative. He said, of course, I went up home. He wasn't able to tell anybody that I was gone home with this cloud. I rang my husband to tell him. He told his boss and he was sent home immediately. And so were the four lads that he was working with sent home immediately. Remember now, nobody in school knew I was even gone or why, but they all did in his work. And another uh, member of the household, same thing. He told the boss and the boss said to go straight home and the team he was working with also told to go home. Now, luckily, we were all negative except her. She was positive and the SNA was positive and there were a few other cases in the school. That school tried, they said we're going to have to close, couldn't get a substitute for five teachers who were going for tests and were close contacts. It turned into many more than five. Told they had to open. So one day they had like, of eight teachers, they had something like six substitutes in that school. Mm. And my daughter was told she wasn't a close contact of anybody and she wasn't a close contact of the SNA and the SNA wasn't a close contact of her. Mm. Now, illogical. Yeah. And that's, there, all, that's some, all evidence in the reports that we have, the FOI that we'll have this week mm. will show a lot of what was happening behind the scenes mm. between the HSE, communicating with NEFIT. And, and, and I think that's really important for teachers to see in particular because you have been completely gaslit. Mm. And there's no other way of putting it. Teachers, SNA, all school staff have been completely gaslit. Um, a lot of the public, you know, they, they slam. I don't know why parents slam teachers and educators. I don't understand that at all. I can't for the life of me understand it. You're leaving your children in their care. Yeah. This is the big thing is you guys are actual educators. You actually have real proper education behind you, real life experience. And yet you're told you're wrong and everyone else is right. Exactly like what Ma said, mm-hmm. you know, you don't even need to okay you do need to have a science degree in in what you're doing but I mean down to the basic of terms in February 2020 all the way back when I put out a big big tweet because we had swine flu in 2009 and I just put out anything I thought could help people stay in the room keep away from other people the usual this was me I don't have a science degree these are teachers you actually know what you're talking about and you have been gaslit and I think that is absolutely wrong on every level but, but, it, but it, it, to the latest one the, the pregnant teachers and snas yeah i'm going to bring i'm going to talk yeah. about that now actually next yeah. um and, and we'll, but briefly before we do like but it works olive you know this gaslighting does work um because uh and and the 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 attacks on on teachers uh you just want to close schools you want that now olive, i don't know if you remember the, la- the last podcast we had going back ages uh we we in the in the aci our union we had a certain set of things that we wanted the government to fulfill, otherwise we were going to take industrial action. And actually, if you look at the things that we wanted fulfilled, they were proper social distancing, they were mask wearing, yeah. they, were, yeah. they were all the mitigation measures that would actually keep schools open. Exactly. Right? Now, what happened is the department refused uh, to implement some of these things. They said, we're looking at it. In other words, putting it on the long finger, we're looking at it. And then it came back to the end of last year when the B117, not even Delta, let's remember, because Delta hasn't been in our schools yet, but the B117 uh, and the department said, uh, 
no, we don't need to update though the we don't need to update the mitigation measures in schools based on what we've looked at. There's no need to do it, and and, and it just carries yeah. on. And yeah. I can tell you now, um, they did they did take industrial action in fairness to all the teacher unions that time before we, we were going to go back to school in January because things were it, that, at that stage it was just desperation. It was my God, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And also yeah. the students were kicking up and the parents were kicking up, which all helped. Yeah, but. I'm telling you, a lot of the decisions that are made at the, the executive meetings of, of all the teacher unions are, and a lot of the things are said, we can't threaten strike action in the middle of the pandemic because we'd be et alive by the media, by the public, by everybody, despite the fact that the things we were looking for were trying to keep like schools open and keep things going and keep yeah. continuity and keep education going. And yeah. that brings me to the next thing. We, we spoke a lot about... Right, Andrew, can I just make one point there on, before you James, go on to yeah. the next thing? Because yeah. I actually have to go soon as well. You, you just, can because I'm a brutal host. Go on. <laughs> just on the... Um, Tomas mentioned the parents advocacy groups and all of the work you do with Parents in Ireland is brilliant. But I, I'm really shocked that the National Parents Council yeah. for primary and post-primary schools have been absolutely silent I, on this. And they are the groups, they are the advocacy groups that can get in to department meetings. They yep. are financed by the department and there's something rotten there in the state of Denmark, I'm, I'm afraid. And Seamus, I'm just going to say this week I will be releasing two letters that I sent to both of the secondary school and the primary school uh, councils. I sent them um, last November. Uh, attached with very, very detailed data reports, not the big one I, we did in January and February, one before that, um, I actually asked them all the legal questions uh, regarding child's rights, as, as you were talking about Tomas earlier on. I, I asked them, I have not received anything from any of them. And to me, that is an absolute disgrace because they actually have access to share information with parents. They have the databases of many parents across the schools. Um, and they've access to policymakers. Um, and to me, that I think that is an absolute failure. I know there's a group on uh, Twitter called Voice of Parents, I think. Yeah. They're doing a great job trying to uh, try and understand why are these groups or like these voluntary organizations yeah. into what parents are actually saying. Like I did a Twitter poll yesterday. Um, I think there's over a thousand, I haven't looked at it now, it's over a thousand um, uh, people have uh, responded to it. And the question was, um, you know, do you uh, agree with the, do you think that schools are safe based on DAS government policies? It's something along the lines of that. We're looking at 84, 85% are saying, no, we don't agree that the policies for schools are safe. Well, now there's a little bit of bias. Obviously, a lot of my followers are along the same wavelength as me, but there's a lot that aren't, you know. Still comes down to the point, you know, we have to do something about this. And I think mm. we have a lot of groups against us mm. and there's, we should have a think tank or something along the lines to bring the groups together to literally bang it out in every press. If you have to pay for it, pay for it. Get mm. it into every newspaper exactly what's going on. Because Yeah, like, um, like I said, that should be the parents that are being let down by these advocacy groups. And just two more points I'd like to make. Um, you know, we really, we mentioned that the kind of guidelines for the return to schools were the same as a year ago. Um, they did grudgingly add Delta symptoms um, to the guidelines, mm. but they're added as other uncommon symptoms of COVID, which again is disingenuous, I think. Yeah. And then there's just an, a point I want to make on CO2 monitors. I had heard, now I could be wrong here, maybe someone might enlighten me here, that if CO2 monitors are in other workplaces, they're set at 800, yeah. I think it's particles per million. 
But the yeah. advice for schools is to be set at 1,400 um, PPM. Um, and I think, too, again, the exceptionalism around schools is shocking. Um, OK, thank you, Andrew. You're a great yeah. host, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so um, we've, we spoke a lot, obviously, about stopping the spread and, and, and Tomás starkly you know outlined what the possibilities could be in terms of spread in our schools because let's face it a lot of the primary school kids are unvaccinated and and at the moment there is a good amount of secondary school students unvaccinated but there's still a significant portion of those who, who are not vaccinated at second level as well but there is another cohort that we haven't mentioned yet purposely because i wanted to give it a time on its own uh, and that's uh, vaccinate uh, sorry pregnant teachers um, who are in early uh, period of the pregnancy are not vaccinated yet. I think it's 14 weeks, the first 14 weeks or something have, have not been vaccinated yet. Um, it's, it's incredible um, that they are being asked to go into a workplace um, where there could be COVID um, around. And, and I suppose the response then from, no more than you talking about the Parents Council, uh, Seamus, the response from the Institute of Obstetricians and Gynecologists was that Pregnant teachers at this stage are, are, are no uh, more likely or no more at risk to, to COVID than the general population. Uh, no, the, no, that's not right. They're no more at risk of getting it. Than the general, general. Yeah. Than the general population. Yeah. But they are vulnerable due to their pregnancy. Now, I'm quoting today because yeah. she was on this, the Cleaner Murphy, who's the chair, she was on with Brian Dobson today. And uh, I've got. The link if you want to add it later but she said that it, it's because brian dobson asked her is it because they're they've got underlying conditions the pregnant women and she said no 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 it's their vulnerability is because they're pregnant mm. especially in the later stages of pregnancy and they're needing to be in the icu but also if they're unvaccinated and she's kind of putting the blame on pregnant people or teachers in particular if they're not vaccinated but they can't be vaccinated before 14 weeks or after 35 weeks and they're they're young and also i want to say this for pregnant teachers out there who've decided not to be vaccinated the messaging saying to them that it was safe for them to be vaccinated is pretty new i haven't heard anything much about this until about last week that the pressure has been coming on and people have come out and said, yes, it's it's safe. And our obstetricians and GPs are telling the pregnant women, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. And they're saying then, I think I won't get it. And they're saying, yeah, you're probably wise. Come on, you can't blame pregnant women when they're getting that message. Can I also say on that, that when you're pregnant, I'm speaking from experience, um, Generally, you're more nervous than the normal person yeah. Yeah. about anything you put in your body, including yeah. even Panadol or coffee, yeah. tea or wine. Like yeah. that, it's normal to be a little bit worried, especially if you think about someone who, who particularly may have been waiting for a baby for a long time yeah. or has gone through IVF or whatever the case. They don't want anything maybe to disrupt that. Like I heard people saying to me, coming back at me on my own Twitter, you know, I'm, I'm always getting slammed, but um, you know, saying, "Oh well, they should have got the vaccine," you know, if it was. Yeah. 14 weeks ago but remember our vaccine program has only sped up really sorry there's a fly in my room going over my camera <laughs> um, but there is um 
uh, it, it's only sped up recent, like very, very recently. There was age limitations as yeah. well on our vaccine program. And I completely agree on the messaging of it. Yeah. Um, but right now they can't. So the situation isn't whether they did or whether they didn't or whatever they did or didn't. Mm. The reality is right now, they're not vaccinated. Mm. They're yeah. going into schools where children are not wearing masks, where we don't have HEPA filters, where we've seen two monitors set at the wrong freaking level. There's no social distancing. You're yeah. asking be they pregnant or not, they're, they're at risk, higher mm. risk than and other workers in other workplaces are given alternative work. So why can't pregnant teachers and SNAs be given alternative work? Why can't they work from home to keep them safe mm. like other workers have always been able to? Why can't they? I think this is a particularly egregious part of the story. I know it only affects a subset of people, but in one of the worst ways, it is completely unacceptable for any teacher, in my view, to be forced to go into work unvaccinated with these yeah. COVID levels, because no one is really safe from COVID, regardless of what your age is. If you're pregnant, you could be well into your 40s or 50s in some cases. Yeah. Uh, once you're over 45, you're in a very dangerous zone for COVID. Anyway, you don't need to be elderly to be going into the more dangerous zones there. It's completely unacceptable to have people unvaccinated in a, in a busy workplace with these case numbers in a, in a largely unvaccinated environment. Um, I personally think it was a huge failing that we didn't prioritize teachers for vaccination. Yeah. At the end of last year, that's a whole different story. Uh, but now with these numbers, with the Delta wave, uh, to have unvaccinated pregnant uh, teachers in the classroom is, is unacceptable. I would go so far as to say if you're pregnant and unvaccinated and, it, and you're a teacher, just simply don't go yeah. to work. It's not worth it. We don't know what the virus does to pregnant women. There isn't enough information on exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. We don't know what it does to the unborn fetus. Yeah. Um, but there is a literature, a scientific literature that is quite extensive, not extensive, growing. Uh, for general infections and what general infections uh, and maternal immune inflammation can do to, um, to a fetus, in, not in all cases, but in some cases, it's something we're learning about. Uh, we just don't know what COVID-19 is doing in, in, in this case. We're completely yeah. ignorant to it at the moment. That will yeah. be worn out over years. Um, so it's, it's, it's completely black and white, I think, unacceptable to expect unvaccinated pregnant teachers to go in with respect to the question of vaccination, it's a more complicated question. Personally, I've been asked by friends and family who are pregnant, not teachers, incidentally, who are other people, whether they should get vaccinated while they were pregnant within the time constraints uh, that are set out. I've always said I would do it in their position. I would, I would advise my daughter to do so because there are so many cases in the community you just don't want to risk getting infected uh, if you're unvaccinated. If you're in New Zealand, maybe you would have a different opinion. Maybe you decide it's not worth it. Different countries have different uh, ideas here. In Germany, they advise you know pregnant women not to get vaccinated unless they're in a high-risk profession and teaching is a high-risk profession. So if you're going to go in, of, of course, you want to be vaccinated. But I think we're talking about a relatively small number of people, and I think they need to be given the choice. I think so. And like Tomas, like you, if I if it was me, I would think I would take the vaccine. But like Olive said, when you're pregnant, 
you're so ultra, ultra careful and you're trying to mind that baby the very best you can because mothers all blame themselves for any little thing up until the children are 60 or 70 probably. They blame themselves. But to blame yourself that you did something to harm that baby by getting the vaccination. Now, I don't agree with that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the messaging hasn't been good enough yeah. to allay the fears of those pregnant women, and it should be. And it's no good to start it this week when they're throwing them back to school. That's blackmail. It's horrible. I can't, and, no, and one last thing, and I'll shut up, sorry. Norma Foley then said yesterday, I should look, they can take sick leave. And she said that they can take pregnancy-related sick leave and it won't affect their overall sick leave. Yeah. That's, that's not correct. Yeah. And I you have come out tonight and said so. Yeah. But, but maybe she wants to change the sick leave. Well, that's a different thing. And you mm -hmm. know as well that Medmark, a private company, are changing um, what consultants are saying to pregnant women and other high-risk so uh, if I had a consultant and he said, yeah, you're very high risk, you can't go to school, Medmark would change that. So a, a doctor in an office, who I don't know what qualification they might have, is overruling a consultant and their expertise. That's happened for years. That's happening, years, that's happening. That that's happening to pregnant yeah. women as well. It's really the, the, the Medmark doctors are overruling and they're being told to, obviously, or why would they do it? So that's another disgrace. That's that has been happening, as Olive said, since the very beginning. Yeah, uh, we were questioning, like I know people in other professions who, who were considered, you know, they they were high risk, so they, they didn't have to go to work. But in yeah. teaching, it was high. It was only for a very high risk, and, and all this kind of thing. Uh, you know, that's yeah. been happening, and, and who was deemed to be high risk and who wasn't yeah, seemed to be anecdotally, anecdotally seemed to be very different for different uh, for different professions, but. That is very interesting that you mentioned that, Tomas. Again, going back to um, the um, looking for prioritization list. Now, what's what's the what's the big deal? You'll be vaccinated before uh, you know you go back to school, which more or less is true. Uh, it did happen more or less, uh, I'd say. Uh, but this problem now that we're facing and the pregnant teachers are facing the dilemma that they're facing probably would not be happening had they vaccinated teachers earlier on uh, and back and the other thing to mention about the pregnancy related thing is that it's, it's only going to be a short phenomenon because it's only a few yeah. weeks that we are talking about you would think they would say to pregnant teachers you can work from home uh, we know you know you can do it because you've done it for the last year and a half working from home that there's absolutely ways yeah. that these things can overcome uh, and it's only for a few it's only for a few weeks uh, really and uh, that this that this may uh, become an issue I think we'll leave it there. Um, we've uh, we've given it a good trash. There's loads more that we could talk about, but we won't because people won't listen that long. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> good to the first we, one, Andrew. We can come back, uh, and I will try. It's my first one back, so uh, I did allow people to go on a bit too much there, but sure, what harm? Uh, everyone got to say what they wanted to say. Um, so listen, thanks very much to everybody. Um, I think the message is the teachers do not want to close schools. Uh, it is. Um, it is going to be unsafe. It's not going to be a safe place, but it could be made a hell of a lot safer with the introduction of masks at primary school, with the introduction of ventilators, which they have known, not ventilators, that's totally the wrong word, but uh, with um, air purifiers in the room, with CO2 alarms, with all these measures that they have known uh, for months, for absolute months, that this was the way it was going. And again, before the start of the school year, 
this is, uh, you know, they they, they, they they land this. when And now they can just say, well, the schools have started, so there's no time to do anything about it. And then it's over to the trade unions then who are lambasted on the media if they try and say, well, we're not going back, etc. and so on. So the, the whole cycle continues over and over again. Um, and uh, look, uh, I'd just like to say to everyone to stay, stay safe. Uh, and and uh, thanks very much for, for coming on.